Hello, I'm Pastor Rob Spencer of Church United. We are excited because God is at work in our community of Christ followers. And it is my hope that God works in your life as you listen to this message today. If you'd like more information about Church United, please visit us at churchunited.family. We have been in this series um, called It's Not You, It's Me. And uh, that's often a famous breakup line. Um, if, if you've ever been in that situation or it's been, um, it's been used on you or you've been the one that's used it, um, that's that dreaded words, let's just be friends. Um, you know, that idea, we know what they mean. They don't, they don't mean to be friends. They mean this thing's over. Um, and uh, the, you want to let people down easy. And we've talked through that line, it's not you, it's me. But in reality, if we're just honest with ourselves, it is us. Um, we are the actual problem. It's something within us that it, our selfishness, our desire for something different, to look different, to be different, not what that person is or what they bring to the table. Sometimes it, it really is us, and we're the problem in the relationship. So we started talking about what this looks like, and we said, ultimately, relationships were not meant to be ended. Relationships are meant to be mended. Um, God's design was never for for you to completely break off a relationship with someone. Friendships, dating things, siblings, parents to children, children to parents, all of those relationships in marriage, relationships were not meant to be ended. They were meant to be mended. God has a design and a desire to use us to sharpen one another. And if we allow that to happen and we look in to say, it's, it's not about you, it is about me. What is it then about me that needs to change in order to allow God to mend me and make me whole? So it begins with me. We said the first two letters of mending. If it's not about ending, it's about mending. The first two letters of mending are M-E. That's me. And I need to think about me, not in order to say, what can, can I, how can I get what I want and what I deserve and all these things, but how do I mend me? Starting there to say, how can I look more like Christ so that my relationships more reflect Christ? So we've been in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, and that has been... Uh, it's a challenging book. I don't know if you know this, but uh, hopefully you've recognized it as I have, talking about the light and the love of Christ and what that looks like and allowing the light of Christ. In Ephesians chapter five, verse uh, two, is kind of our theme verse. And it says, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. So this puts two challenges in front of us when we think about ourselves. Are we following Christ and are we living a life that's full of love? And that should then permeate every relationship that we are in. And next week, I wanna tell you, I'm gonna talk a little bit next week about what about a bad relationship? What about an abusive relationship? What about a relationship, you talk about mending, what does that look like if it's just not a healthy situation? We'll talk about that next week. But I'm talking generally, and I'll tell you just, just a, you know, a, uh, a little teaser, it's still meant to be mended, but what that looks like may be different. So the statement still remains true. Relationships are not meant for ending, they're always meant for mending. What does that look like in that kind of relationship? We'll hit that next week. But today, we have the opportunity to dive a little further into Ephesians, and we're down in the 20s of Ephesians, chapter uh, or verse 21 through uh, 33, and we're gonna dive into Ephesians and look at that. But I just wanna catch us up real quick, up to speed with kinda where we ended last week. We kinda, uh, 
dove a little bit into singleness and kind of what that looks like from the standpoint of redeeming your time. And we saw this statement made in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles and and a copy of God's Word, we would love to give one of these to you. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible and you need one, stop by the, uh, the table up there and ask for one. They may scramble and say, I don't know, but we'll find one for you because we do have some around here that we would love to give you. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. So we, we, we read this last week, verse 15. It says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. So make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. So last week, we kind of dove into this idea of making the most of every opportunity. Uh, Other versions of the Bible say, redeem the time. Um, This is the idea. We talked a little bit about singleness of this idea. Sometimes we have a little too much time on our hands, so we need to be wise with how we spend our time. And the verse goes on and says, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So everything we do, we should do with intentionality in every stage of our lives that we plan out. If we have the attitude, let's just see what happens, um, then you're just going to see what happens, and a lot of times it's not good. Um, So if that's our mindset in singleness, then we're going to be years and years down the road and go, oh, now I see what happened. When I didn't plan, when I didn't put God first, when I didn't strive to honor him, I really have seen what happens. So we need to adjust that, make those changes, not just in singleness, but every area of our relationship. And then it goes on in verse 18, and it says, do not be drunk with wine, but because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. Man, this sounds wonderful. Life is a musical. All right? This is what it should be every day. You're making joyful noises to the Lord in your heart. I'm going to work baby. I'm going to work. You know, Jesus loves me. You cut me off in traffic. You're going to hell, but Jesus loves you anyway. No, sorry. Maybe, maybe you should taper that back with some theology. I'm just, you know, just, just reality here. Make it a biblical musical. All right. But anyway, Everything in your heart, everything in your heart, praising God, thanking God for the good situations, the bad. God, you've got something that you're going to do in this. And we've talked about this idea that some of us, even in our relationships, desire for God to make things easier. But God's not looking to make things in your life easier. He's looking to make you stronger. So these are why we want to pour our time into remembering what God's designed us to be, who God's called us to be, and beginning to look like Christ, follow the example of Christ, walk in the love of Christ. So we give thanks for everything to God. In the name, uh, uh, to God the Father, excuse me, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we go on, and we're diving into 21 through 33. And we're focusing a little bit more on marriages. And it says, verse 21, And furthermore, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands in everything, Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself, gave his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present 
her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And then in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. For no one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Verse 31, and as scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illusion of the way Christ, excuse me, it's an illustration, not an illusion, Uh, it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And so again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let me slow down just a touch, because uh, I get my words get ahead of me. Uh, it is an illustration, not an illusion. <laughs> it's magic. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing here today, God. As we read this, this isn't always easy to, to understand. It's not always easy to come to terms, Lord, with exactly what it is that we need to do and how we need to respond Um, So I just pray for your wisdom to be in our hearts today. As we prayed at the front side of the service, Lord, we desire your Holy Spirit to be among us, that you would be here, that you would walk among us, that you would be in our hearts and our minds. Help us to decipher and determine what your word is communicating today, Lord, how it needs to change our hearts from the inside out. So I pray, Lord, for these words that are your words, your holy word to us, to help us, Lord, that they wouldn't be taken as offensive, Lord, but it'd be words that would be taken as help, a desire of a father who loves us so much to instruct us, his children, and how to walk. So we pray for that today, and we ask for your blessing on our time together. In your precious name we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So here's the deal. So uh, uh, this verse 22 is one that um, really uh, isn't the best place to start. Uh, because we, we read, wives submit to your husbands, and immediately in our culture, in our day and age, everything else, immediately what that does is go, you know, we kind of we suck some wind back, and we say, ah, and, and if we're a lady, we don't like it very much, and, uh, and if, if, if we're the guy, uh, and this is usually what happens when a pastor preaches on this, wives submit to your husband things after church, none of the ladies want to talk to me, and all the guys are like this, giving me a thumbs up on the way out the door. I know it's hard to preach the tough stuff, Pastor, but we appreciate it. Um, you know, because you don't want to say these things. Good job, Pastor. Um, but so we, I, I don't want to start there. I think the best place to start before we dive into that is to begin to understand what the context of this is and what the real uh, focus of this passage is first. And if we can understand that piece of it, if we can understand what the intent here is of the Apostle Paul and his angle of why he's bringing this in this way, I think then we'll better understand the meaning behind that verse itself. So I think it's important for us to start not with the submission thing, but start with the idea of what Christ did in the church and for the church. 
Because this is the picture that's being painted of what a good marriage should look like. is Christ's love for us. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've submitted your life and said, God, I want to follow you, I desire to give you my heart, and I want to live like you, so you're striving to do those things, what happens is you now are a child of God. You're a follower of God, but not only a child of God, there's all kinds of illustrations that take place here, as it was an illustration. It is an illustration now of Christ's love for his bride. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're also called the church, which is called the bride of Christ. So Christ is the groom, we're the bride, so now we have a picture of marriage. So instead of comparing a good marriage to your marriage, like, oh, my parents had a good marriage, or my grandparents had a good marriage, or my friend Billy and uh, Susie had a good marriage, whatever it is, let's start with what an actual good marriage should look like according to the Bible, and this is the illustration of that, Christ's love and Christ's heart and Christ's desire for the church. So here are five things that I see as I look through here, and there may be more, but what did Christ do for the church, or what did the groom do for his bride? Number one, Christ loved the church. So Christ loved his bride. Love. He loved his bride. Now, the next four things really then begin to define what true love is. What does love look like? So let's figure that out. Christ loved the church. He loved his bride. So this means Christ acted selflessly toward his bride. That was a picture of Jesus Christ. Gave of himself everything that he had. He gave it down to giving his life. So he acted selflessly, and that goes into the next one, and then Christ sacrificed his life for the church, his bride. He loved his bride so much that nothing was out of the realms of giving, that he gave everything that he had. He laid his life down for the benefits of the church, of his bride, to see that his bride had true life. Number four, Christ sanctified the bride, sanctified the church. This means that he, he desired to make the church holy. His desire for you and me was that we wouldn't live a sinful life and continue to get off track and always be sidetracked by sinful activities and sinful things and things that aren't honoring to him. And as we read during that, the wages of sin is, uh, during worship, the wages of sin is uh, death, but the gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we have death and, and our sin leads us to death. So Jesus died for us, gave up his life, the perfect sacrifice because the wages of sin is death, so death was paid through through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So death is paid, and now he, he was raised again to walk, or, or for us to walk in newness of life when we believe in him. So after that peace, now we have this sanctification, that now we are made holy, that we are set apart. So he sanctifies us. He did this great work, not to leave us where we were at, but to change us, to sanctify us, to purify us. And then finally, Christ invited us to be a part of him. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now we are a part of him, and not only just a part in that way, but we are actually called members of the body of Christ. 
that this is what we are. We, have, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We're the, the, the lungs and the heart and the, the kidneys and the whatever. We're, the, we're pieces of the body of Christ. We are a part of it together. That's how much he loves us. He didn't save us just to set us over there, but he saved us, and we became one with him because of his sacrifice. So this paints a picture of love. Real love, true love. And if you want to know what true love is, it's not the ooh and the butterflies and the gooey feeling and the the romance and all that stuff. True love looks like what Christ did for the church. He laid down his life. He gave everything. So this begins to define who Christ is. And you say, why is that important? It's important because this is what our marriages should look like. This kind of love should be the centerpiece of your not only marriages, to be honest with you, but relationships. That it's love. So we, begin, we have to start here, and we begin here and understand what this is. And everything in Scripture then needs to be, and when we don't understand the passage, we don't get it, we're not sure where this one goes, or how do we do this. We have to always view Scripture through the lens of what we know is true about God. Is he's pursued us. That from the beginning, after the world was created perfect and Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered into the world and a corrupted humanity, God began a huge pursuit of mankind out of love to save us, to bring us back and to not leave us in destitution, to not leave us in sin, to not leave us in the mess we were in. He didn't save you to leave you there. He saved you to sanctify you, to make you holy, to make you pure, and to make you part of the family of God. So the heart of God and how we read Scripture then should always be viewed through a lens of love. And what we understand as we begin to work this out is we read a verse like, okay, wives, submit to your husbands. And instead of putting it in context of what Paul, the author of this book, was actually meaning when he wrote it, because what Paul is doing is he's pulling in the teachings of his mentor, Jesus Christ, seeing what Jesus had done. Jesus radically saved him, appeared to him. Paul's walked through this. Paul is taking everything he learned from Jesus and the love that Jesus had, and he's infiltrating into his teaching to the church. So he's teaching them what the love of Jesus Christ looks like. But instead of looking through that, we look at through, it, through it with a cultural lens. That what does submission mean to us? And submission's a bad word in this day and age. Submission doesn't look, it's just not right. We've got a lot of stuff going on currently in our culture around us that would say, no, that submission word is a bad word. We don't do that. And especially women submit to men. Don't teach that, pastor. I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk out. But I want you to understand, you can't start right there. You have to start with the love of Jesus to understand what the passage is talking about. And once you begin to view this passage through the filter of God's love, it begins to change how we live it out, or should change how we live it out. First of all, in the culture during this time, what you have to understand in this Greek-Roman culture that this verse was no big deal. There weren't ladies reading this verse at this time and going, what? This was like, okay, yeah, what, what else new do you have here, Paul? Thanks. Thanks for repeating that. We already know that. Because what was happening in their culture was a very male-dominated society. And, and it didn't matter if you were, you were right or wrong. If you were strong, you won. And that's how it worked. It, 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 just, it, it wasn't an issue. 
If you had the might and you had the power and you had the strength, you got your way. So it was a very male-dominated society. And women and children in that society were looked at as lesser than. It was just part of their lives. They never in their mind thought they would ever be made as equals to men. That was the culture that Paul is writing this in. So when, when they read, oh, wives, submit to your husbands, the ladies weren't going, well, I declare. Um, they were just like, yeah, that's about right. What else is new? But what was new in this was not the message. That What was new was the why. Why are you submitting? What's the point of the submission? It's, it's because of love. And this message of love was something that was new, that when Jesus came onto the scene in this time, Jesus was all about love, and Jesus was shaking the foundations of their culture. And Jesus was saying, it's not about who's the strongest wins, it's not about having the might, and it doesn't matter if you're right, you, that's not how it works, you need to have love. And it's not about having power and authority. It's if you have power and authority, how can you leverage that power and authority, not for your benefit, but for the benefit of those who are weak? And Jesus stormed onto the scene, and he begins to preach a message that is counter-cultural. It's about loving one another. It's about respecting one another. It's about caring for one another. It's about submitting to one another. Because we're quick to jump into wives submit to your husband's verse and most pastors want to start it. Maybe you've heard it in church and that's where they start is let's teach a message on, parent, or on, message on marriages today and it's all about this. It's about wives. It starts here with you. No, 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 no. Skip back a verse to verse 21 and where's this thing start for us? It says, further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So before he gets into, before Paul starts talking about ladies and talking about the home, he makes a broad statement across the board and he says submission just isn't about the home. It just isn't about a wife and a husband and she's got this submission duty and she's got to just live with that. This is a message for everyone across the board in all cultures, submit to one another. So in every relationship you have, in everything that you do, in your friendships, in your relationship at work, with your boss, uh, with your coworkers, with your children, with your spouse, with your family, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I then have to start processing. If it's not you and it's really me and I understand that it's me and I need to start working on me, in order to be the me's, that's all of us, that we were meant to be's, got to rhyme it, mutual submission is the mission. In order to be the me's that we were meant to be's, mutual submission is the mission. Mutual submission is the mission. We all submit, we all prefer, we all love one another. And it begins there. And this is the beginning of Paul's teaching because it emphasized who Jesus Christ was and is. He wasn't was, he is today. He's still there. Still here, still among us. And it emphasized who he is. His character is born of love. And you say, well, how do, how do you see that? In, in, in the book of John, 
chapter 13. Verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Now listen, what's this have to do one thing with the other? Here's someone who has authority over everything. He has the power. It's his to do what he wants with, and he's there at that place here, and it says in John 13, Jesus knew this. He knew that he had absolute supreme authority. He had come from God. He was going back to God. That's how it was going to work. This whole thing's down, and Jesus has the, the right, the authority, the power to do whatever he wants to do with this authority. Have you ever met someone that gets a little bit of authority just a small little title, and all of a sudden they went from, all right, I am now in charge of the toilet paper in the bathrooms. I will tell you when to wipe. I will tell you when to refill. I will tell you, you know, and it's like, what in the world? What happened to this person? They were meek, they were, you know, just kind of that there, and they were unassuming, and I said, you're over toilet paper, and this happens. God. Now, minions, listen to me. And, uh, and this, is, this is people, we work with some of these people, right? You know these people, they're in your workplace. They're in your homes. <laughs> we have friends like this that just take charge authority. I've been given the right. Because this is what we think sometimes. When we think authority, we often think, okay, how can I play this out to my advantage? How can I make people look at me? How can I take the power that I've been given and make others feel less than? But remember, God's not striving to make our lives easier. He's striving to make us stronger. And the reason he desires to make you stronger is not so you can be in a greater position of authority, not so you can push people down, but so you're strong enough to help them up and to lift one another up. And this is what mutual submission is at its heart. It's understanding that no matter what position of authority you have, your goal then becomes not to leverage your authority so that you can have a greater life, so things can be easier for you, so that you can look down on others, so that you can play the boss and be in control. The, re the way that you manage your authority and your power is one that you begin to use it and leverage it in such a way that God's given you the ability to help others. What's Jesus do with his authority? Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything that, and, and, and that he had come from God and he would return to God. So what's he do with his authority? He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. How did Jesus leverage his authority? He loved and he served. And when he was in a position and everyone knew who he was, where he had come from, how great he was and how awesome and powerful and mighty he was, he took all that they knew about him and he took the authority that had been given to him from God and he got down on his knees and he washed feet 
And we saw this in the character of Jesus all throughout the scripture that his greatest mission was to love. He always looked for opportunities to love and to serve. What did Jesus do? He, he followed People followed him, but when he walked, people were following him. They're coming up to him, and he's healing the sick, making the blind to see, casting out demons. He's spending time feeding into the life of his disciples. He is helping. He's serving. He's loving. And over and over again, example after example of Scripture is that Jesus used his authority to love and to serve. And Jesus stepped on the scene, and he said, with my authority, I'm going to change culture. I'm going to change history. I'm going to change whatever you have at the foundation and the root of what makes you tick. I'm going to help you understand that it's not about power. It's not about dominating. It's not about all that that culture was about. It is about loving one another and preferring one another. They said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your husband. Love your wife. Love your children. Love was the foundation and is the foundation of mutual submission. And this was the heart of Jesus. And the example we have given in marriage to understand then, what is marriage to be about? What's that look to look like in the home? It is two people that are equally mutually submissive to one another, striving to outdo one another, showing love in the home. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's the thing that we get mixed up on in our homes and in our lives is that we, we, we forget who it's for. And we come to this conclusion, and wives, you come to a conclusion that your, wife, your husband, you know, he's just not worthy of respect. You say respect your husband, I, I, you, don't, you don't know him. You say be mutually, how can I submit to that guy? And husbands, you say, oh, Pastor Rob, you don't know my wife. You couldn't be mutually submissive. You, she's hard to love. And I can't submit, I can't serve that person, I can't love that person, because the easiest foundation of how to practically play this out in your marriage is through a simple question that you can constantly ask yourself. When I'm in a situation and Kelly and I are together and there's something that's going on, there's some kind of thing happening, the easiest way to be mutually submissive is for me to ask the question, because remember, it's about me. It's about coming back here and saying, what do I need to change? How do I mend me? Not how do I fix her? Just a little side note here. A lot of you got into a relationship and you got into the relationship knowing there are all kinds of problems, but what your goal was, the problems weren't with you, they were with the other person, and you thought, I can fix her. You thought, I can fix him. And you're trying your whole marriage, striving to fix the person, but you're not mending yourself. And the problem starts here, that if I don't get this right, if I don't fix me, and I don't get me in line with what God desires me to be. It doesn't matter what the other person looks like. If I haven't fixed this first, it's not going to work. So the best question I can ask is, how can I help? 
The simplest question you can ask to, to say, what does mutual submission look like played out in a marriage or, to be honest, any relationship? You have to ask yourself, walking into any situation, how can I help? And this is hard because I think I'm already helping. I'll determine what I'm going to do, and I'll determine how I'm going to help. Now, I might step on some guy's toes here. Maybe some ladies' toes. Maybe you can put yourself in this scenario. But I think I already am helping. Like, I've already laid out how I'm going to help. So I don't need to ask how I'm going to help. I already know I am. I go to work. I, I mow the grass. I take care of the kids when, it, when it's my turn. Um, and, and I got my stuff. And every once in a while when the trash is overflowing and it hits that part where you just got to balance a bottle on the top, um, and you're like, oh, it fell off. Okay, I'll take out the trash. That's, that's where it's at, you know, and I've got these things that I do. I take care of the cars and the relationships. She doesn't have to worry about her car. She just tells me problems. I know I'm helping, but I'm not asking. And if I never ask, how can I help you? That's not mutual submission. That's me saying, I've got my job. You've got your jobs. You do your thing. I'll do mine. And then when she really needs help, she doesn't feel like she could ask. And when he really needs help, he doesn't feel like he can ask. And it's a simple question to be inserted in your relationship that says, how can I help? And a lot of us, our fear here is that we're overloaded. We've got too much on us already. And if I ask how I can help, maybe someone's actually going to answer. And they're actually going to give me a list of things that I need to do to help. And I'm already overloaded and I've already got all this other stuff to do. And ultimately, they're not even worthy of my help because they got this time on their hands and they're mismanaging this and they're not doing this right. So they really don't need my help. What they need is my advice. So rather than helping, I will give some good solid advice. Why don't you fix your time management problems and then come back to me? Then we'll talk. Why don't you fix your issue with this thing and your little hobby over here and your little thing over here, and then we'll come back and talk? Instead of just being honest and asking the question, how can I help, and waiting for a response, because ultimately what that says about us is we don't want to help the person because we don't think they're worthy of help. We don't, want, we don't revere them in any way. We don't uphold them in any way. If you just knew my husband, if you just knew my wife, you would know that she's not worthy, that he's not worthy. But guess what? The verse says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for That's a fill in the blank. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, not one another. You don't serve someone else. You don't love someone else. You don't help someone else because they're worthy or even deserving. You do it out of reverence for Christ because guess what? One another is rarely deserving. And if I try to love my spouse or I try to love someone in my life because they're worthy, because they're deserving, they're always going to let me down, they're always going to disappoint me, and there are going to be times that they're not worthy. And guess what? I will never be submitted to either because guess who else isn't worthy? Me. And if we want to be the me's, we were meant to be's. Mutual submission has to be the mission. And mutual submission says, I will love, I will care, I will serve no matter what. And it's not out of reverence for you. It's not because you're deserving or you're worthy. It's because I want to honor God. I want to serve as Christ served. And I want to show the love that Christ 
has shown me. I want my relationship to look like Christ's relationship with me. Mutual submission becomes the mission. In our culture and in our day, this is not a popular phrase. Because the word submission often says weakness. And we've equated that submission with weakness or powerlessness. And then we've changed and we've, we've taken this word authority and we've translated this word authority to be synonymous with tyranny or dictatorship. But these are not what we see. It's not the truth of God's word and it may be your reality, but it's not the truth of God's word. There's so many of us in our relationships that we can't even think about submission because we haven't allowed Christ to change our definitions. It's so, so important that we take our definitions and our understanding of what God calls us to be from the Word of God not from culture, not from people around us, not from what we've seen growing up, none of those things. We have to take on what God has called us to do in our marriages based on what God has actually shown us in his word and through his word. So this means mutual submission being the mission means that it begins to change everything that we think and how we approach marriage, how we approach relationships, how we work through our lives. And ultimately, when we look at this through the lens of Christ and his church, it changes how we think because authority is not about tyranny or power and it's not submission isn't about inferiority or weakness. So we mentioned these five things. Authority every husband then holds in his home is to model the authority that Christ displayed for the church. Because ultimately you think, oh, Pastor Rob, what you're trying to do is skirt the issue of there's no line of authority in the home. And you're just saying mutual submission and that's it. No, I, I'm not skirting that. What I'm helping you try to do is define words prior to going into understanding how the authority works in the home. Because once you understand the authority and what power means and what submission means, then you begin to become thankful for what God has put in place in order to maintain and help relationships, especially marriage relationships, thrive. So we look at this through the lens of Christ. If Christ has put the husband in authority in the house, and mutual submission is the mission across the board, then Christ loved the church. So husbands, love your wives. Ask, how can I help? Show her that you care for her, that you desire to serve her, that you want to be showing her love the way that Christ loves. And wives, love your husbands also the way Christ loved the church. Husbands, Christ acted selflessly toward the church. Do we act selflessly in our relationships? And this isn't just for husbands, it's for wives. That doesn't mean you get to be, un, to be selfish because your husband's unselfish. No, mutual submission says, how can we help each other? How do I lay aside my thing and say, how can I come alongside you and help you? 
So we begin to paint a picture of what Christ did for the church. Christ sacrificed his love for the church, or his life for the church. Husbands, be willing to lay your own life down. You say, I would die for my wife, but I won't give up Monday night football. Oh, I would die for my husband, but if he takes away my credit card, he's going to die first. We care for one another, selflessly sacrificing everything in order to honor one another. Christ sanctified the church. Husbands, strive to live in such a way and walk so close to Christ that your wife and your children desire to be like you and you can say as Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. That your desire is to see your family be holy. Wives, if you don't have a saved husband, if he doesn't know the Lord, live in such a way that the way you live exemplifies Jesus Christ, that he is drawn to Christ because of your testimony in the way that you live, in the way that you love like Christ. And Christ invited us to be a part of him. Husbands, stay faithful to your wives. You have become one, united together, one flesh, Treat one another with respect and dignity and care. If we want to be the me's, we were meant to be's. Mutual submission is the mission. 